Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So um, how did this all come about? So this is the second time uh, Skylight has been kind enough to host this event. Um, what happened was that uh, last year, I was doing some work on, um, on uh, the mayor's LGBT heritage committee. And uh, they had all these events that were planned, um, and there wasn't a single literary event, actually. Um, which was really interesting because um, the, uh, all of the different um, affinity groups, like the Asian group, the Latino group, you know, African American group, the women's group, they all have writing contests. And um, they actually had to stop the writing contests because no one was submitting. However, the LGBT writing contest was thriving. They were getting, you know, tons and tons of submissions. Not, you know, it was open to anyone. So we had allies who, who who wrote too. But it really became clear to me that there were these voices that really wanted to be heard. That there were these voices. There were these young writers, and some of the work that were, was coming out was absolutely incredible from um, people between the ages of uh, uh, 12 to 18. And I was so moved um, by what was being done that we need to have space, more literary space to celebrate LGBT pride. Because if you don't know this, there's a tiny little festival that happens. Um, <laughs> it's happening tomorrow in West Hollywood. Yay, let's give that, let's give it up for the West Hollywood Gay Pride. It's big and fabulous and wonderful and lots of fun and lots of dancing and stuff. And I thought, you know, and that's a really terrific part of the community. Um, but I also wanted to highlight there were other parts of the community that also exist, you know, so like some creative endeavors. So um, what I did was I asked some really terrific writers to please read work from other writers who inspired them. That's what I said. So it wasn't necessarily about reading about us. It was reading our own work. It was reading the work of other people who meant something to us. And um, the way it'll work is I'll read something first, then Alexis uh, will read, then Trevor, Eduardo, Miriam, and then Bernard. And um, I asked them to talk a little bit about their writer and what was it about their work that moved them. And um, the writer that I chose was uh, Susan Sontag, actually. And the reason why, I'll tell you why I, I um, uh, 
came about her work was that in uh, about five years ago I was working on um, an art project called Make Art Stop AIDS at UCLA, and uh, it was to it was to observe the 30th it was the, the upcoming 30th anniversary of um, of um, HIV and AIDS. It was an international exhibit that was touring the world. And since I was working there, they said, "Well, can you write something <laughs> to um, to talk about the exhibit, to talk about AIDS and how it made a global impact, and um, that we can use for UCLA as well as other publications?" And I'd been doing AIDS work for a number of years since 1990, and um, although I've written a lot about AIDS and grants and things, I'd never really wrote. I thought I'd never really wrote about it in a more literary way, I guess, you know. It was just very dry and it was very, you know. Um, and uh, in that library was a book by Susan Sontag called AIDS and Its Metaphors, um, which was inspired from her first book 10 years ago, 10 years before this, called Illness and Its Metaphor, Illness and Its Metaphors when she was dealing with cancer. Um, and it was published in 1987, and I thought for 1987, for someone to come out to, to write about AIDS and, and what it means, you know, not just scientifically, okay, but what it means broadly, I thought was pretty remarkable. And um, I actually was, uh, I ended up using her work, I didn't plagiarize her work, <laughs> I didn't plagiarize her work, but just sort of as sort of like a standard about writing about um, AIDS and HIV. So I'll just read a little bit of it. Um, she references uh, Cotton Mather in this particular section. Um, if you're not familiar with who Cotton Mather was, he was uh, one of the architects of the uh, uh, Salem witch hunts. So, when you hear that name, that's what it means. The emergence of a new catastrophic epidemic, when for several decades it had been confidently assumed that such calamities belonged to the past, would not be enough to revive the moralistic inflation of an epidemic into a plague. It was necessary that the epidemic be one whose most common means of transmission is sexual. Cotton Mather called syphilis a punishment which, which the just judgment of God has reserved for our late ages. Recalling this and other nonsense uttered by, about syphilis from the end of the 15th to the early 20th centuries, one should hardly be surprised that many, many want to view AIDS metaphorically as plague-like, a moral judgment on society. Professional fulminators can't resist the rhetorical opportunity offered by a sexually transmitted disease that is lethal. Thus, the fact that AIDS is predominantly a heterosexually transmitted illness in the countries where it first emerged in epidemic form has not prevented such guardians of public morals as Jesse Helms and Norman Potterettes from depicting it as a visitation specifically aimed at and deservedly incurred by Western homosexuals, while another Reagan-era celebrity, Pat Buchanan, orates about AIDS and moral bankruptcy, and Jerry Falwell offers generic diagnosis that AIDS is God's judgment on society that does not live by his rules. What is surprising is not that the AIDS epidemic has been exploited in this way, but that such cant has been confined to so predictable a sector of bigots. The official discourse about AIDS invariably includes admonitions against 
bigotry. The pronouncements of those who claim to speak for God can mostly be discounted as the rhetoric regularly prompted by sexually transmitted illness, from Cotton Mather's judgment to recent statements by two leading Brazilian clerics, Bishop Falcao of Brasilia, who declared AIDS to be the consequence of moral decadence, and the Cardinal of Rio de Janeiro, Eugenio Sales, who wants it both ways, describing AIDS as God's punishment and as the revenge of nature. More interesting, because their purposes are more complex, are the secular sponsors of this sort of invective. Our authoritarian political ideologies have a vested interest in promoting fear, a sense of the imminence of takeover by aliens, and real diseases are useful material. Epidemic diseases usually elicit a call to ban the entry of foreigners, immigrants, and xenophobic propaganda has always depicted immigrants as bearers of disease. In the late 19th century, cholera, yellow fever, typhoid fever, tuberculosis. It seems logical that the political figure in France who represents the most extreme nativist racist views, Jean-Marie Lapin, has attempted a strategy of fomenting fear of this new alien peril, insisting that AIDS is not just infectious, but contagious, and calling for mandatory nationwide testing and the quarantine of everyone carrying the virus. And AIDS is a gift to the present regime in South Africa, whose foreign minister declared recently evoking the incidence of the illness among the mine workers imported from neighboring all-black countries. The terrorists are now coming to us with a weapon more terrible than Marxism, AIDS. The AIDS epidemic serves as an ideal projection for first world political paranoia. Not only is the so-called AIDS virus the quintessential invader from the third world, it can stand for any mythological menace. In this country, AIDS has so far evoked less pointedly racist reactions than in Europe, including the Soviet Union, where the African origin of the disease is stressed. Here, it is as much a reminder of feelings associated with the menace of the Second War as it is an image of being overrun by the Third. Predictably, the public voices in this country most committed to drawing moral lessons from the AIDS epidemic, such as Norman Potterett's, are those whose main theme is worry about America's will to maintain its bellicosity, its expenditures on armaments, its firm anti-communist stance, and who find every evidence of the decline of American political and imperial authority. Denunciation of the gay plague are part of a much larger complaint, common among anti-liberals in the West and many exiles from the Russian bloc about contemporary permissiveness of all kinds. A now familiar diatribe against the soft West with its hedonism, its vulgar sexy music, its indulgence in drugs, its disabled family life, which has sapped the wall to stand up to communism. AIDS is a favorite concern of those who translate their political agenda into questions of group psychology, of national self-esteem and self-confidence. Although these specialists in ugly feelings insist that AIDS is a punishment for deviant sex, what moves them is not just or even principally homophobia. 
Even more important is the utility of AIDS in pursuing one of the main activities of the so-called neoconservatives, the culture comp, against all that is called for, for in short and inaccurately, the 1960s. A whole politics of the will, of intolerance, of paranoia, of fear of political weakness has fastened on this disease. Thank you very much. <laughs> She's no lightweight, right? I mean, she is no lightweight. It's like, woohoo! Wow. So that was Susan Sontag. Um, and uh, she's written um, many books. So um, to let you, of course, I, I, I told everyone to do something that I did not do, which was to give a little bit about who, Susan, who their author is. Susan Sontag was born in New York City on January 16th, 1933, grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and attended high school in Los Angeles. Woohoo, LA! She received her BA from the College of the University of Chicago and did graduate work in philosophy, literature, and theology at Harvard University and St. Anne's College, Oxford. A human, actor, act, human rights activist for more than two decades, Ms. Sontag served from 1987 to 1989 as president of the American Center of Penn, the international writers' organization dedicated to freedom of expression and the advancement of literature, from which platform she led a number of campaigns on behalf of persecuted and imprisoned writers. And we lost her in 2004. So, Our next reader is Alexis Roan Fancher. Alexis is a member of Jack Grape's LA Poets and Writers Collective. Her work has been published or is forthcoming in Rattle, Boy Slut, The Mass Tequila Review, Cultural Weekly, Haiku, Tell Your True Tale, Bare Hands, The Juice Bar, Poised in Fight, edited by A.J. Huffman, Gutter Eloquence Magazine, from the Four Chambered Heart, edited by Marie Lacrevain, and elsewhere. In 2013, she was nominated for a Pushcart Prize, and she is the poetry editor for Cultural Weekly. Please welcome Alexis. Um, I chose Jeanette Winterson, and I'm going to read a little bit about her. The late Gore Vidal called her the most interesting young writer I have read in 20 years. Born in Lancashire in 1959, Jeanette Winterson has always been an outlaw writer. I remember discovering her second novel in a Santa Fe bookstore. The title, Sexing the Cherry, was irresistible. Published in 1989, it won the E.M. Forster Award from the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters. Her first novel won the Whitbread Award. Much like the American poet Sharon Olds, she was brutally raised by Pentecostal parents. Reading was not approved unless it was the Bible. Her parents intended her for the missionary field, but Winterson instead fell in love with the woman, left home at 16, lived on the street, and read English at Oxford. She has published novels, essays, plays, as well as children's books. In 2006, she was awarded an Order of the British Empire for services to literature. Winterson takes risks, is honest about her sexuality, and writes beautifully. She, along with Dorothy Allison, made me believe that my story mattered and made it okay for me to be risque and to tell my own sexual truth. The excerpt I'm reading today is from her 1993 novel, Written on the Body. 
It is a love story, and like all Winterson novels, a philosophical meditation, this time on the body and on the very nature of love. There are people who say that sex isn't important in a relationship, that friendship and getting along are what coast you through the years. No doubt this is a faithful testimony, but is it a true one? I have come to this feeling myself. One does after years of playing Lothario and seeing nothing but an empty bank account and a pile of yellowing love notes like IOUs. I had done to death the candles and champagne, the roses, the dawn breakfast, the transatlantic telephone calls, and the impulsive plane rides. I had done all of that to escape the cocoa and hot water bottles. And I had done all of that because I thought the fiery furnace must be better than central heating. I suppose I couldn't admit that I was trapped in a cliché every bit as redundant as my parents' roses around the door. I was looking for the perfect coupling, the never-sleep, non-stop, mighty orgasm, ecstasy without end. I was deep in the slop bucket of romance. Sure, my bucket was a bit racier than most. I've always had a sports car. But you can't rev your way out of real life. That homegirl gonna get you in the end. This is how it happened. I was in the last spasms of an affair with a Dutch girl called Inga. She was a committed romantic and an anarcha feminist. This was hard for her because it meant she couldn't blow up beautiful buildings. <laughs> she knew the Eiffel Tower was a hideous symbol of phallic oppression, but when ordered by her commander to detonate the lift so that no one should unthinkingly scale an erection, her mind filled with young romantics gazing over Paris and opening aerograms that said, Je t'aime. We went to the Louvre to see a Renoir exhibition. Inga wore her gorilla cap and boots in case she should be mistaken for a tourist. She justified her ticket price as political research. Look at those nudes, she said, although I needed no urging. Bodies everywhere, naked, abused, exposed. Do you know how much those models were paid? Hardly the price of a baguette. I should rip the canvases from their frames and go to prison, crying, vive la résistance. Renoir's nudes are not at all the world's finest nudes, but even so, when we came to his painting of La Boulangère, Inga wept. She said, I hate it because it moves me. I didn't say that thus are tyrants made. I said, it's not the painter, it's the paint. Forget Renoir, hold on to the picture. She said, don't you know that Renoir claimed he painted with his penis? Don't worry, I said. He did. When he died, they found nothing between his balls but an old brush. <laughs> You're making it up, am I? Eventually, we resolved Inga's, Inga's aesthetic crisis by taking her Semtex, C4 plastic, plastic explosive, to a number of carefully chown urinals. They were all concrete Nissan huts, absolutely ugly and clearly functionaries of the penis. She said I wasn't fit to be an assistant in the fight toward a new matriarchy because I had qualms. 
This was a capital offense. Nevertheless, it wasn't the terrorism that flung us apart. It was the pigeons. My job was to go into the urinals wearing one of Inga's stockings over my head. That in itself might not have attracted much attention. Men's toilets are fairly liberal places. <laughs> but then I had to warn the row of guys that they were in danger of having their own balls blown off unless they left at once. A typical occasion would be to find five of them, cocks in hand, staring at the brown streaked porcelain as though it were the holy grail. Why do men like doing everything together, I said, quoting Inga. This urinal is a, is a symbol of patriarchy and must be destroyed. Then, in my own voice, my girlfriend has just wired up the Semtex. Would you mind finishing off? What would you do under the circumstances? Wouldn't impending castration followed by certain death be enough to cause a normal man to wipe his dick and run for it? They didn't. Over and over again, they didn't just flick the drops contemptuously and swab tips about the racing. I'm a mild-mannered sort, but I don't like rudeness. On the job, I found it helped to carry a gun. I pulled it out of the waistband of my recycled shorts and pointed the barrel at the nearest angle. This caused a bit of a stir and one said, you a loony or something. He said that, but he zipped his flies and buzzed off. Hands up, boys, I said. No, don't touch it. It'll have to dry in the wind. At that moment, I heard the opening bars of Stranger in the Night. It was Inga's single, signal to say that we had five minutes, ready or not. I motioned my doubting John Thomases through the door and broke into a run. I had to get into the mobile burger bar Inga used as a hideout. I threw myself in beside her and looked back from between the bread rolls. It was a beautiful explosion, a splendid explosion, much too good for a load of demi-Johns. We were alone on the edge of the world, terrorists fighting the good fight for a fairer society. I thought I loved her, and then came the pigeons. She forbade me to telephone her. She said that telephones were for receptionists, that is, women without status. I said, fine, I'll write. Wrong, she said. The postal service was run by despots who exploited non-union labor. What were we to do? I didn't want to live in Holland. She didn't want to live in London. How could we communicate? Pigeons, she said. That is how I came to rent the attic floor of the Pimlico Women's Institute. The point was that their attic faced roughly in the direction of Amsterdam. I can tell by now that you are wondering whether I can be trusted as a narrator. Why didn't I dump Inga and head for a singles bar? The answer is her breasts. They were marvelously upright, the kind women wear as epaulets, as a mark of rank. Neither were they prepubescent playboy fantasies. They had done their share of time and begun to submit to gravity's insistence. The flesh was brown, the aureoles browner still, nipples bead black. My gypsy sisters, I called them, though not to her. I had idolized them simply and unequivocally, not as a mother substitute, not as a womb trauma, but for themselves. Freud didn't always get it right. Sometimes a breast is a breast. 
Half a dozen times I picked up the phone. Six times I put it down again. Probably she wouldn't have answered. She would have had it disconnected but for her mother in Rotterdam. She never did explain how she would know it was her mother and not a receptionist. How she would know it was a receptionist and not me. I wanted to talk to her. The pigeons, Adam, Eve, and Kiss Me Quick couldn't manage Holland. Eve got as far as Folkestone. Adam dropped out and went to live in Trafalgar Square. Another victory to Nelson. Kiss Me Quick was scared of heights, a drawback for a bird. But the WI took him in as their mascot and rechristened him Bodicea. If he had not died yet, he is still living. I don't know what happened to Inga's birds. They never came to me. Thank you. Trevor Healy was born in San Francisco, raised in Seattle, and studied English and American literature at the University of California at Berkeley. He recently came out with two books, A Horse Named Sorrow and Fawn. He recently won the James Duggan's Mid-Career Prize. Please welcome Trevor Healy. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read from one of Tom Spanbauer's books. And I first came across Tom Spanbauer when he, uh, I discovered The Man Who Fell in Love with the Moon. Many of you probably did as well. It's kind of a cult classic at this point um, about a Native American boy in the 19th century growing up in a whorehouse and discovering <coughs> his two-spiritedness. Um, Tom was born in Idaho and grew up on a farm. He was an only child, and he was raised in a very strict uh, Catholic home. It was a wheat farm, and it was right next to the Shoshone Reservation, so he got very interested in that as he was growing up. He eventually went off to New York, got an MFA at Columbia, and then he wrote uh, Man Who Fell in Love with the Moon and a couple other books, uh, Far Away Places, Now is the Hour, which I'm going to read from, and uh, In the City of Shy Hunters. So this is a little section of Now is the Hour, which is fairly autobiographical from the time that he was growing up in this farm, and he's this kid who's getting you know, harassed for being a sissy. He's very lonely. His parents are really religious. They make him bring in the entire wheat crop by himself, and they hire a couple of uh, Mexican guys this one year to help him. <clears throat> so that afternoon at the top end of the field, on the last load of hay in the field, <clears throat> Acho popped the clutch, and the truck lurched ahead. Flacco was standing on the back of the truck. He tried to keep his balance as the truck bounced over the corrugations, but it was too much. It wasn't long, and Flacco and the half load of hay we had on the back of the truck went flying ass over tea kettle. Good thing we didn't break any bales, but it wouldn't have mattered. Acho, cabron, puta madre, his driving not worth one chingada. The field where we were loading hay that day was the hay field next to the swimming hole. The truck, when Acho finally got it stopped, was right next to the gate to the canal. It was about three o'clock. Flacco was lying on the ground, his head propped up against a hay bale. Acho sat in the cab of the truck, the door open, smoking a cigarette. I just jumped up and was sitting at the back end of the truck, my legs dangling over the side. After laughing, all that was left was the high, hot sun, heat, and hay dust, flies buzzing, and half a load of hay to restack. That's when we heard it, the most beautiful sound, the waterfall. Spontaneous combustion inside of us all at once. Flacco leaped up like some wild animal. He said, let's go swimming. 
Asho didn't have to think about it. He was in <coughs> midair, puffing on his cigarette. Puta madre. Flacco and Acho were halfway climbing over to the fence before they looked back at me. I was still sitting on the back of the truck. In fact, my butt was welded to the back of the truck, the air inside my chest trying hard to breathe. Come, Rigby John, Flacco said. Come, let's, let's us swim. It's your birthday. The feeling in my arms that means I am helpless. You guys go ahead, I said. I'll restack the hay. Ay, cabron, chingada tu puta madre. Rigby John, Nacho said. Just leave the hay, Flacco said. We'll swim and then we'll stack that hay. No, I said, you guys go ahead. Cabron, Flacco said. Flacco's dark eyes trying to look inside me all the way from over on the fence. Let's swim, Flacco said. How do you say something you don't even know? I can't, I said. My dad will catch us. You go ahead swimming and I'll watch out for my dad. It wasn't long and Flacco and Acho were standing behind the truck. Flacco had his hands around one of my legs, Acho had his hands around the other. They were looking up at me, the gringo loco. How could I help it being from my family? I mean, now that I look back on it, it's true I was worried about getting caught by dad, but really, that day, my birthday, I could have risked that. What was scaring me? What was welding my ass to the flatbed was something else. I don't have a swimming suit, I said. I mean to tell you, I have never seen two people laugh so hard so fast. The both of them, Flacco and Acho, were squirming around on the ground in the hay stubble, yelling and screaming, beating their hats against their legs, holding their guts, like to die laughing, those two. And no towel, I said. I don't have a towel. I was one fucking funny gringo, all right. I can laugh at it now, but believe me, sitting on the back of the truck that day, my ass welded to the flatbed, my hands curled around inside the slots where you stick in the sideboards, the prospect of swimming naked with Flacco and Acho was another life away from me. So what did Flacco and Acho do? They did what any good friends would do. They helped their friend not be afraid. Don't get me wrong, they didn't hold my hand and say, it's okay, Rigby John, you don't have to be afraid, you're among friends. In fact, just the opposite. Acho grabbed me around the middle and threw me over his shoulder. Such a surprising feeling. I'm a big guy, I wasn't as big then, but I was 5 foot 10 and 160 pounds. Easy, and there I was up in the air, a sack of potatoes hanging over Acho's shoulder. I must tell you, I didn't like it. Every time someone has grabbed me like that, it meant I was nothing. It was my father, and I wasn't considered. I was just something to throw around, to stick a yellow tulip up my ass. The fear was great in me, and I was having trouble breathing. The feeling in my arms that meant I was helpless, and everything started to go black. Flacco and Acho didn't know how scared I was. I mean, I don't think they knew. Acho didn't know for sure. He just carried me kicking and screaming like a girl to the gate. He opened the gate even with me on his shoulder. It wasn't until we got <coughs> to the canal just before Acho set me down that my eyes happened to look over to Flacco. That moment. Something in Flacco's eyes was like Jesus. I don't know what you'd call it. His long black eyelashes, his black eyes. Something in them, whatever it was, when I looked down inside me, and quick, I felt sure I was not alone. After that glance, just like that, I quit kicking and screaming. Acho put me down on the ground. The ground, my feet were on the ground, and up through the ground, some kind of solid sucked up into my legs. Flacco's eyes were still Jesus, and I got my breath back, and I was standing on my own two feet, and I was with my friends, and we were all laughing like before. Then the shock of my life, well, that is up until then. Flacco reached down and grabbed the bottom of his t-shirt and pulled his t-shirt over his head. Armpit hair, my God, I'd never seen Flacco without a shirt. My breath gone away again. Flacco's shoulders, his collarbone, his nipples. Then both of his shoes were off. He'd kick them off, and his hands were around his denims, and sure enough, and nothing flat, there he was, all a flacco, naked right there, the black hair of his crotch, the muscles that curved down from his waist, a dovetail to his cock, his cock resting on his balls, darker brown and voluptuous. I don't know what else to call it how he was. Thick, darker brown than the rest of his skin, his cock, his balls, voluptuous. Then Acho, too, naked, stark naked. 
All that dark brown muscle, one long uninterrupted, uninterrupted ripple of muscle, the hair in the middle of his chest, the little trail of hair starting at his waist, then thick down around his cock and balls, beautiful brown round asses, Flacco's ass, something so smooth you wanted to slap hard or bite into, but instead you just lost your breath, you lost your balance, and Ocho's ass, smooth and round and brown too, but inside the crack a dark mass of black hair, all in an instant, naked romping men, whole entire bodies, all of the body, every part of the body, foot pads to foreskin to earlobes, totally naked, gut-wrenching, breathtaking, heartbreakingly naked. I was lost. And so they go swimming. We could not stop. We swam, we climbed the bank, we ran in the still blazing heat, goose flesh our bodies, our feet pounded, pounded over the two by 12, jumping to the lava rocks, handholds, footholds, sometimes the moss too slick for good purchase, clamoring, breathing hard, laughing, always laughing, always laughing up to the top again on, onto the res and the red world and the sweat cedar. We jumped again and again, over and over and over. In the world there was nothing else, only our bodies propelled through the air, under the sun, in the green water, into the white rapids, the plunge, everything different, different and bright, everything possible. Low gold sun driving the load home in first gear down the arc of the bow of the reservation. Between the two gates on the longest stretch of open flat land between the field and the feedlot, Flacco is driving too fast. We always drive too fast when we can, especially between the two gates. And this late afternoon, my birthday, it is the last load. Saturday night and Sunday, and no hay to haul ahead of us. I am sitting in the middle between Flacco and Acho. Flacco's hat is off, and the wind from the open window is blowing his wet hair. Acho isn't wearing his shirt, and the sun is gold on his skin. Flacco shifts from third gear to fourth gear, and when the gear shift goes into fourth, Flacco's hand comes down. I doubt if Flacco even knows he's touched me. The little square inch of skin on my right leg below the knee. Everything gets slow and I feel the scared place inside me that I don't know is scared until it stops feeling scared. And when the scared feeling stops, I get a big full feeling in my chest. And I love God so much right then. Our smell, sweat and hay and dust. And the smell of the cab, gasoline, oil, exhaust fumes, cigarettes, mossy canal water, roaring down the road in a beat up old truck. Me in the middle, Flacco and Acho and I, skin to skin to skin. My skin almost as dark as their skin. Just the three of us, close, riding in the truck, the wind blowing through. The way we are smiling, we all know. This is a moment in our lives. Flacco takes a drag on the cigarette. Acho closes his eyes, stretches his neck. My exhale settles my, deep, my body deep into the seat, as if the seat is the only thing that holds me up. Each of us knows, and we know that we know, and without a word we bless the moment. And now, a year later, even more, that moment is still with me, riding on my breath in the pulse of blood, the deepened lifeline in the palm of my hand. What I have come to know is true, moments of gesture, to know what it is to love. Flacco slid down in the seat so his body stretched out to the end of his knees. He put his long fingers through his curly black hair. Rigby John, Flacco said, why don't you come tonight to our house and visit us? The big empty place just down from my throat, the sore place next to my heart. My arms got the helpless feeling in them. I thought I was going to cry. I quick made my hands into fists, put my fists up into my armpits. These guys really liked me. A deep breath, my mouth finally let the words out. Sure, I said, I'll come up after supper. Thank you. Thank you, Trevor. 
We're having a good time. Are you guys doing all right? Yeah. Doing all right? I'm having a good time. I'm really liking this. I really just like love the story. And what I also love is that, uh, you know, is that um, um, I get to uh, introduce these these terrific people. Um, I I knew Alexis before she was, you know. Nominated for the push cart, you know, and stuff like that. We met in a writing class, and it's just—it's wonderful being able to introduce her. And the same with Trevor. Before he had books, you know, now he's got like three, right? Have three books. So to see these writers grow is uh, truly inspirational. Um, and another person who I'm also. Um, happy to see grow is Eduardo Santiago. I've known him for um, quite some time now. Um, Eduardo, if you want to applaud for him, go. I feel like these tents of applause. So if you want to applaud for Eduardo, feel free to applaud for Eduardo. His birthday was yesterday, by the way. His birthday was yesterday, so I want to, you know. Um, so Eduardo was born in Cuba and grew up in Los Angeles and Miami. He holds a BFA in film and television from California Institute of the Arts and was a 2004 Penn Emerging Voices Rosenthal Fellow. He wrote the novel Tomorrow They Will Kiss and most recently Midnight Rumba. Please welcome Eduardo Santiago. Thanks, Noel. Um, and thank you, Trevor. I mean, I don't know how I'm going to follow all those cocks and balls and la Latino muscles and, and all that. It's like, okay, they're going to be bored. Uh, but I have the real thing. So, um, Latino cock and balls, that's me. All right, well, hello, everybody. Um, hello, hello. Um, some of you um, may be familiar with um, the writer that I'm honoring today, uh, tonight, um, Reynaldo Arenas, um, from his autobiography, Before Night Falls, um, which was published in 1993, or the movie by the same name that was released in 2000, kind of made Javier Bardem a star. Um, like Reynaldo, I was born in Cuba, in Oriente Province. Um, he was 14 years older than me, and left Cuba a decade after me, when he was already 37 years old. I left when I was 10. So our trajectories were very different. It was easy at 10 for me to stop being Cuban. Impossible for him at his age. But through my writing, I have slowly reclaimed my nationality and my culture. Reynaldo never lost it. He, in the end, it was all he really had. Um, Reynaldo was fiercely Cuban all his life. And like many Cubans of his age group, um, he was in his late teens when Castro took power. He was pro-revolution, believing um, what the Castro brothers promised. Um, his disenchantment with the new regime came quickly and hit hard. And he hit back in the only way he knew how, through his writing. Um, writing and writers in Cuba have always been worshipped at every level of society. But as the communist stronghold tightened, um, Writers were now feared, persecuted, and imprisoned. Um, the Black Spring um, of 2003 was a crackdown um, when the Cuban uh, government imprisoned 75 um, what they called dissidents um, um, that included 29 journalists um, as well as librarians human rights activists and uh, democracy activists on the basis, which also means unfounded suspicion that they were acting as agents of the United States by accepting aid from the US government. Um, so basically, this thing that we're doing here could not happen there. Um, 
Reynaldo was one of these people that they feared because um, he could only speak, write, and breathe the truth. Um, in terms of influence and style, Reynaldo and I are very different writers, but his courage had great influence um, in, on me and in uh, his anger. Um, here's um, the writer Jaime Manrique. I don't know if you guys know him. He's, he's Colombian, but he visited um, Reynaldo. He was his neighbor in New York, and he visited him, and, and he wrote about it. And I'm just going to read a little bit about that conversation to give you a taste of what this Reynaldo Arenas was like. Um, this is Jaime speaking. I said, Reynaldo, if there is anything you need, please don't hesitate to let me know. Whatever it is, cooking your meals, getting your medicines, going with you to the doctor, anything. Um, I mentioned the Pan American Center. You know, it's funny that, that Pan has been mentioned before. Um, I mentioned the Pan American Center had funds for writers and editors with AIDS and offered to contact them. Thank you so much, Cariño, um, Reynaldo said in the plaintive sing-song in which he spoke. It was a sweet, caressing tone, melodious like a lazy samba, but also mournful, weary, accepting of the hardships of life. This was a typically pleasant trait. And then Reynaldo said, there is a woman who comes to help three days a week. She does my errand. I don't like those men who serve as volunteers. I can't stand all that humility. You know, I considered taking that last part out, but Jaime included it in his report and I needed to include it too, because um, Reynaldo Arenas was not a saint. You know, he, he was a, a human, he was a writer, he was gay, he was frightened. He would be dead within the year of this conversation that he had with Jaime. And um, I, I just wanted you guys to hear that. Um, and then he went on to say, but if you contact the pen club, that would be good. I would like to get away from here before winter comes. My dream is to go to Puerto Rico and get a place at the beach so I can die by the sea. So um, like Reynaldo, I also want to die by the sea. And I think that when we say the sea, we really mean our native countries uh, or our native country. Um, he didn't and it's unlikely that I will. Um, Cuba is a long and narrow island and so we are never very far from the sea. And from the sea we expect tranquility and meditative calm. Um, and we also expect miracles as anyone who is familiar with Cuban's patron saint. Are you guys familiar with Cuban's patron saint? You know, that she, there were these fishermen who were in a storm and the, the virgin appeared, you know, over them and she quieted the storm and these guys made it safely. So whenever you see um, a statue of a virgin and a little boat and, you know, these fishermen looking up, that's our patron saint. La Virgen de la Caridad del Cobre, I think she's called. Um, um, so Cuba, uh, um, during Castro's reign, the, the sea that surrounds the island um, has become Cuba's main source of entertainment um, because it's free. Or as my aunt put it on one of my visits, all we can offer you is our love and salt water. Um, <laughs> 
But from the sea, we have also learned to expect violence and death, as has been, the experience, has been experienced by the countless balseros, those who take to the Florida Straits to try and make their way to the US, where they have to pass the wet foot, dry foot law. Do you guys know about the wet foot, dry foot law, right? If you make it onto sand, you can stay, but Anyway, um, so uh, Reynaldo was well aware of the contradictions of the sea. And in my favorite novel, Farewell to the Sea, a couple go to a seaside cottage to work on their relationship. And although they do experience periods of tranquility and meditative calm, they also experience what I'm about to read. So this is um, a chapter from Farewell to the Sea. It's very short. Um, and it's not a gay couple. Uh, he, he didn't write exclusively gay things, um, but he wrote with a gay sensibility and he wrote brilliantly. Hector, lying on the bed naked, Trevor. Um, Hector's legs, Hector's face, I slowly turn my head and contemplate the length of his body. <laughs> Hector, we look at each other, we both naked contemplate each other. Now, utterly white from the brightness, we begin to come together. Slowly he crawls on top of my body, presses my face. I slowly run my hands down his back. We give up being two to become one single tense vibration. Hector, I say again, Hector, I say for the first time. And the mosquito net comes undone and envelops us as we collapse, panting. Then, now, a scream is heard. For a moment we remain in our embrace, utterly still. The cry, a kind of wail, grows even more piercing. We look at each other, we leap from the bed, throw on our clothes and run out toward the cries. A crowd of people is gathered on the beach. The screens are clearer now. I think we both at the same time have just recognized them. We shove our way through. The naked, battered body of the boy is lying on the sand. His mother with her house dress open is jumping about him with her hands on her head, giving those horrible shrieks. A couple of men come up to her and try to hold her. She goes on howling as she looks at us with dry, bulging eyes. Hector and I draw closer until we are motionless beside the shattered body. He must have fallen from someplace really high. Someone softly comments, nobody gets that messed up from just any old fall. Somebody saw him floating right by the shore. Another whispers behind me, and the talk goes on. The people arriving begin asking what happened. Everyone gives his own theory. I see them all circling the corpse. I see the mother, not tightly restrained, but still shrieking. I see Hector. I see the ocean washing sometimes right up to the boy's crushed feet. And I feel suddenly a strange sense of calm, a stillness, an unbearable but in perturbable serenity. The police and ambulance arrive together. They inspect the place and photograph the body. As they signal the medics to put the corpse on a stretcher, they photograph it again. They cover it up. Silence is now almost total. You can only hear the soft moans of the mother. It seems she has suddenly gotten control of herself. One of the policemen gives a sign. The medics carry the body to the ambulance. The mother shrieks again. The police and some other people have to almost drag her to one of the cars. The ambulance door slams. The vehicle pulls away. 
The people speculating among themselves disperse. A few swimmers go into the water, others lie in the sun. A lifeguard looks at us. He comes over to us. With his feet, he scuffs out the marks that the boy's body has left on the sand. We go back to the cabin. As we pass by the office, Hector tells the woman that she can come take in her inventory whenever she wants. She shouts from her window that we can stay until noon. Hector asks her to please hurry. We go in. He picks up the baby and begin to feed him. I take down the mosquito net. I gather up all our clothes. When I finish, I think I still haven't worn the pants I bought. I brought here especially to wear for the first time. I take them out of the bag and take out the sandals too. I dress. I go to the bathroom. I comb my hair. Hector, still holding the baby, has made breakfast. We both sit down at the table. Someone knocks at the door. Come in, says Hector. It's the woman in charge of taking the inventory. Mechanically, meticulously, she begins to go over everything. We wait on the porch. The whistle of the cicadas rises in step with the brightness. There's an ashtray missing, the woman says to us now. It must be around here somewhere, answers Hector with, without getting upset. If it doesn't show up, tell us how much it costs. The woman refuses to take money. The management won't allow it, she says, and goes back to hunting for it carefully. At last she finds it under an armchair. We turn in the key and leave the cabin. We cross the paved path. We come to the car. Hector puts the luggage into the trunk. Since the baby has gone to sleep, we put him in the back seat. Hector starts the engine. Looking through the pines at the ocean, I light a cigarette. Um, so, um, let's see. So, Reynaldo died in 1990 um, from complications from AIDS. Um, he left behind a substantial body of work, including um, Pentagonia, which is um, Pentagon, is a set of five novels that comprise a secret history of post-revolutionary Cuba. Um, I've been really, it's been a great honor to be part of this and to be among all of you. So thank you for letting me participate. Thank you, Noel, and for the cake. <laughs> all righty, let's see here. So um, uh, let's see. Our, before I read her bio, our next uh, reader, Miriam Gerba, I, um, like I said, I, it's nice seeing writers grow and things. So I remember when um, she came to the store to read, and I've hosted many writers in the last 10 years I've been here, many, many, many writers. But, you know, and sometimes, um, and I, I, I remember a good number of them, but there are a few that make me go, wow. And our next writer is one of those writers that made me go, wow. Because uh, it was a reading for an anthology, and we do lots of anthologies, and she was reading an anthology, and it was a sweet, it was an erotic piece, actually, an erotic piece. And I thought, oh, she's going to write some, and she was talking about this, this uh, Latina background. I thought it was really sweet and it was really kind. And she was talking about her grandmother. Oh, how, how nice and charming. And then it starts going into about how um, the protagonist meets a chola uh, who fucks her with a gun. You know, it was like, it was like, oh my gosh, wow, it was really, really interesting. So, so now I made her blush. Now I made her blush. So, Miriam's hobbies include misinform, misinforming children and art. Uh, <laughs> she wrote Dahlia Season, Wish You Were Me, Menudo, Menudo and Herb, and a white girl named Shaquanda. She blogs at, <laughs> she blogs at Less Brain at radarproductions.org. Please welcome Miriam Gerba. Hi, 
Okay, so um, when Noelle invited me to do this, I knew that I had to um, share Carson McCullers. Um, is anybody here familiar with Carson McCullers' writing? Okay, I adore Carson McCullers. And um, I think that she wrote the most perfect American novella, which is The Ballad of the Sad Cafe. And the way that I became familiar with this novella was that I was um, in high school and I was stalking this girl that worked at the bookstore. And I was so in love with her because she seemed very sinister and satanic and she had this lazy eye. And, um, <laughs> and I just, it seemed like her eye had a mind of its own. It just did these things and I, I couldn't stop thinking about her. And so I eventually got up the gumption to go talk to her and she was reading and I said, what are you reading? And in this almost Betty Boop voice, she said, the ballad of the sad cafe. <laughs> And I knew that I had to read it. And so I read it and I absolutely fell in love with it. And I went on a pilgrimage to Columbus, Georgia, which is where um, Carson is from. And I, I went to her, um, the, the house that she grew up in and I tried to talk to her neighbors. There was a neighbor who was out gardening and he had actually known her and things went great. He was telling me all these anecdotes about um, being her neighbor and playing with her and um, all the other characters who lived in the neighborhood who would come to be characters in her stories. And then he started to lament what he thought had ruined the South, which was racial integration. <laughs> and I wondered if he had any idea I was Mexican. Um, and yeah, and then we ended that day with hot dogs. We ate hot dogs um, near the, the Aflac office building. Um, speaking of Aflac and ducks, um, I brought in a painting of Carson that my friend Ali Liebegott did for me. Um, she paints writers and other artists and pop cultural figures as ducks. So this is Carson McCullers as a duck. Um, Ali has an Etsy store and she's obsessed with Emily Dickinson and she has a poster of her as Emily Duckinson. So I'm gonna pass this around if you wanna look at Carson. And I'm going to read the um, introduction to the Ballad of the Sad Cafe to you, and then I'm going to read this amazing section about love. So here's the introduction. The town itself is dreary. Not much is there except the cotton mill, the two-room houses where the workers live, a few peach trees, a church with two colored windows, and a miserable main street only a hundred yards long. On Saturdays, the tenants from the nearby farms come in for a day of talk and trade. Otherwise, the town is lonesome, sad, and like a place that is far off and estranged from all other places in the world. The nearest train stop is Society City, and the Greyhound and White bus lines use the Fork Falls Road, which is three miles away. The winters here are short and raw, the summers white with glare and fiery hot. If you walk along the main street on an August afternoon, there is nothing whatsoever to do. The largest building in the very center of the town is boarded up completely and leans so far to the right that it seems bound to collapse at any minute. The house is very old. There is about it a curious cracked look that is very puzzling until you suddenly realize that at one time and long ago, 
The right side of the front porch had been painted and part of the wall, but the painting was left unfinished and one portion of the house is darker and dingier than the other. The building looks completely deserted. Nevertheless, on the second floor, there is one window which is not boarded. Sometimes, in the late afternoon, when the heat is at its worst, a hand will slowly open the shutter and a face will look down on the town. It is a face like the terrible, dim faces known in dreams, sexless and white, with two gray, crossed eyes, which are turned inward so sharply that they seem to be exchanging with each other one long and secret gaze of grief. The face lingers at the window for an hour or so, then the shutters are closed once more, and as likely as not, there will not be another soul to be seen along the main street. These August afternoons, when your shift is finished, there is absolutely nothing to do. You might as well walk down to the Fork Falls Road and listen to the chain gang. And the other section that I'm going to read is musing about love. And it's the most horrific musing about love. So I love it. Okay. First of all, love is a joint experience between two persons. But the fact that it is a joint experience does not mean that it is a similar experience to the two people involved. There are the lover and the beloved, but these two come from different countries. Often, the beloved is only a stimulus for all the stored up love which has lain quiet within the lover for a long time hitherto. And somehow, every lover knows this. He feels in his soul that his love is a solitary thing. He comes to know a new strange loneliness, and it is this knowledge which makes him suffer. So there is only one thing for the lover to do. He must house his love within himself as best he can. He must create for himself a whole new inward world, a world intense and strange, complete in himself. Let it be added here that this lover about whom we speak need not necessarily be a young man saving for a wedding ring. This lover can be man, woman, child, or indeed any human creature on this earth. Now, the beloved can also be of any description. The most outlandish people can be the stimulus for love. A man may be a doddering great-grandfather and still love only a strange girl he saw in the streets of Chiha one afternoon two decades past. The preacher may love a fallen woman. The beloved may be treacherous, greasy-headed, and given to evil habits. Yes, and the lover may see this as clearly as anyone else, but that does not affect the evolution of his love one whit. A most mediocre person can be the object of a love which is wild, extravagant, and beautiful as the poison lilies of the swamp. A good man may be the stimulus for a love both violent and debased, or a jabbering madman may bring about in the soul of someone a tender and simple idol. Therefore, the value and quality of any love is determined solely by the lover himself. It is for this reason that most of us would rather love than be loved. Almost everyone wants to be the lover. And the curt truth is that in a deep secret way, the state of being beloved is intolerable to many. The beloved fears and hates the lover, and with the best of reasons. 
For the lover is forever trying to strip bare his beloved. The lover craves any possible relation with the beloved, even if this experience can cause him only pain. Thank you. All right. So we have one writer left. Um, let's see. Our last writer is uh, Bernard Cooper. Before he comes up, I want to say that um, I had this reading last year. All right, and I always tell people, you know, at least with this reading, with the LGBT reading, you know the writing's gonna be good because it's done by really amazing writers who've already been published and already have a reputation. All right, so it says, don't worry, the writing's always gonna be great. So um, last year, one of our, our readers actually read Bernard Cooper. So um, it's actually the first, albeit it's only been two years. <laughs> A writer who'd been read the previous year is actually here tonight to um, to read his own work. To, not his own work, although we could read his own work to read somebody else. Um, and uh, you know, um, uh, writers are crazy people. We all know this, right? Writers can be really crazy, weird ass people. Okay, really. And I, and I know lots of them. You know, I've hosted events here for a long time. I've met a good number of them. Let me tell you that much right now. Okay. And so someone, you know, sometimes people ask me, well, no, well, if, if there's a if there are if there's a writer you'd like to be, who would that be? And, I, and two people came to mind. One was Armistead Mopan. Okay, Armistead Mopan, and the other one was Bernard Cooper, actually. So. Um, Bernard has written two collections of memoirs, Maps to Anywhere, and Truth Serum, as well as a novel, A Year of Rhymes, and a collection of short stories, Guess Again. His work has appeared in Story, Plowshares, Harper's, The Paris Review, The New York Times Magazine. He has won, won numerous awards and prizes, among them the Penn Ernest Hemingway Award, an O. Henry Prize, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Bernard Cooper. Thanks, Noel. Um, wow. <laughs> um, that was very sweet. I, I appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I wanted to choose a writer who not many people knew about. Um, I also want to thank everyone for reading, because it reminded me anew of how great it is to hear a variety of, of amazing voices. Um, I, I chose to read the work of a writer named Richard McCann, who really only has two books out, even though we are pretty much the same age. Uh, one book of poetry uh, called Ghost Letters, and this book, Mother of Sorrows, which took Richard about 15 or 20 years to write um, for many reasons. Um, uh, he's a writer who uh, writes both uh, essays and fiction. He also writes poetry. And one of the things that I love about this piece of writing, which I read in Harper's many, many years ago, he published it when he was very young, is that it manages to uh, merge what for me are the best qualities of poetry, this sort of beautiful, lyrical, almost tangible language, um, certain sort of perspective that's the perspective of an, of an essayist, someone who's standing back and, and looking at experience and thinking about it on the page. And also, he's a terrific fiction writer. And so everything that is uh, written about lyrically or explained philosophically is also dramatized with amazing characters. And uh, this is the title story of the book, which is My Mother's Clothes. 
And it, it, it also is a story that not only builds really beautifully, but, but to me epitomizes something about mid-century America. That summer, humidity enveloping the landfill subdivision, Denny, the new kid, stood on the boundaries while we neighborhood boys played war, a game in which someone stood on Stanley Allen's front porch and machine gunned the rest of us, who one by one clutched our bellies, coughed as if choking on blood, and rolled in exquisite death throes down the grassy hill. When Stanley's father came up the walk from work, he ducked imaginary bullets. Hey, Dad, Stanley would call, rising from the dead to greet him. Then we began the game again. Whoever had died best in the last round got to kill in the next. Later, after dusk, we'd smear the wings of balsa planes with glue, ignite them, and send them flaming down through the dark on kamikaze missions. Long after the streets were deserted, we children sprawled beneath the corner street lamp, praying our mothers would not call us back to our oven-like houses. And then sometimes, Bucky, hoping to scare the elementary school kids, would lead his solemn procession of junior high school hoods down the block, their penises hanging from their unzipped trousers. Denny and I began to play together, first in secret, then visiting each other's houses almost daily. And by the end of the summer, I imagined him to be my best friend. Our friendship was sealed by our shared dread of junior high school. My brother Davis, who had just finished seventh grade, brought back reports of corridors so long that, that one could get lost in them, of gangs who fought to control the lunchroom and the bathroom. With my father at work at the Pentagon, and my mother off driving her two-tone welcome wagon Chevy to new subdivisions. Denny and I spent whole hours in the gloom of my living room, the picture window's Venetian blinds closed against an August sun so fierce it would bleach the design from the carpet. We watched the Loretta Young show, worshiping yet critiquing her elaborate gowns. When the early show came on, we watched old Betty Davis, Gene Turney, and Joan Crawford movies, Dark Victory, Leave Her to Heaven, A Woman's Face. Hoping to become their pen pals, we wrote long letters to fading movie stars, who in turn sent us autographed photos we traded between ourselves. We searched the house for secrets like contraceptives, Kotex, and my mother's hidden supply of Hershey bars. And finally, Denny and I, running to the front window every few minutes to make sure no one was coming unexpectedly up the sidewalk, inspected the secrets of my mother's dresser. Her satin nightgowns and padded brassieres, folded atop pink drawer liners and scattered with loose sachet, her black mantilla pressed inside a shroud of lilac tissue paper, her heart-shaped candy box, a flapper doll strapped to its lid with a ribbon from which spilled galaxies of cocktail rings and cultured pearls, small shrines to deeper intentions, private grottos of yearning, her triangular cloisonne earrings, her brooch of enameled butterfly wings.
Because beauty's source was longing, it was infused with romantic sorrow. Because beauty was defined as feminine, and therefore as other, it became hopelessly confused with my mother. Mother, who quickly sorted through new batches of photographs, throwing unflattering shots of herself directly into the fire before they could be seen. Mother, who dramatized herself, telling us and our playmates, my name is Maria Dolores. In Spanish, that means mother of sorrows. Mother, who had once wished to be a writer and who said, looking up briefly from whatever she was reading, books are my best friends. Mother, who read aloud from Whitman's Leaves of Grass and O'Neill's Long Day's Journey into Night with a voice so grave I could not tell the difference between them. Mother, who lifted cut glass vases and antique clocks from her obsessively dusted curio shelves to ask, if this could talk, what story would it tell? And more, always more, for she was the only woman in our house, a people watcher, a talker, a woman whose mysteries and moods seemed endless, our mother of the white silk gloves, our mother of the veiled hats, our mother of paper lilacs, our mother of the sighs and heartaches, our mother of the gorgeous gypsy earrings, our mother of the late movies and cigarettes, our mother whom I adored and whom, in adoring, I ran from, knowing it was wrong for a son to wish to be like his mother, our mother who wished to influence us, passing the best of herself along, yet who held the fear common to that era, the fear that by loving a son too intensely she would render him unfit, a mama's boy, and who therefore alternately drew us close and sent us away, believing a son needed male influence in large doses, that female influence was pernicious except as a final finishing like manners, our mother of the mixed messages, our mother of the sudden attentiveness, our mother of sudden anger, our mother of sudden apology, the simplest objects of her life, objects scattered accidentally about the house, became my shrines to beauty, my grottos of romantic sorrow, her Revlon lipstick tubes called cherries in the snow, her pastel silk scarves knotted to a wire hanger in her closet. Her white handkerchief blotted with red mouths. Voiceless objects. Silences. The world halved with a cleaver. Masculine. Feminine. In these ways, the plainest ordinary love made complicated and grotesque. And in these ways was beauty, already confused with the feminine, also confused with shame, for all these longings were secret, and to control me, all my brother had to do was threaten to expose that Denny and I were dressing ourselves in our mother's clothes. Denny chose my mother's drabbest outfits as though he were ruled by the strictest of modesties or by his family's austere Methodism a pink wraparound skirt from which the color had been laundered, its hem almost to his ankles, a sleeveless white cotton blouse with a Peter Pan collar, 
a small straw summer clutch. But he seemed to challenge his own primness, as though he dared it with his effects. An undershirt worn over his head to approximate cascading hair. Gum hole-punched reinforcements pasted to his fingernails so that his hands, palms up, might look like a woman's. Flimsy crescent moons waxing above his fingertips. He dressed slowly, hesitantly, but once dressed, he was a manic Proteus, metamorphosing into contradictory, half-realized forms, throwing his long hair back and bawling it violently into a French t twist, tapping his paper nails on the glass-top vanity as if he were an important woman kept waiting at a cosmetics counter, stabbing his nails into the air as though he were an angry teacher assigning an hour of detention. His uh, touching his temple as though he were a shy schoolgirl, tucking back a wisp of stray hair, resting his fingertips on the rim of a glass of Kool-Aid as though he were an actress seating o seated over an ornamental cocktail, a Singapore sling, say, or a pink lady. Sometimes, in an orgy of jerky movement, his gestures overtaking him with greater and greater force, a dynamo of theatricality unleashed. He would hurl himself across the room like a mad girl having a fit, or like one possessed. Or he would snatch the chenille bedspread from my parents' bed and drape it over his head to fashion for himself the long train of a bride. Do you like it, he'd ask, anxiously, making me his mirror. Does it look real? He, he wanted as I did, to become something he'd neither yet seen nor dreamed of, something he'd recognized the moment he saw it, himself. Yet he was constantly confounded, for no matter how much he adorned himself itself with scarves and jewelry, he could not understand that this was himself, as was also, and at the same time, the boy in overalls and keds, he was split in two pieces, as who was not, the blonde wave cresting rigidly above his close-cropped hair. So um, maybe one thing to say finally, and I was thinking this when everybody was reading, that all of us, I suspect, read things we wished we had written. <laughs> and um, one thing about that that I think is really instructive is that for writers, envy, as painful as it can be, is also is very um, closely related to inspiration, to wanting to do more than you thought possible. So, um, so next time you feel envy, Aspire. <laughs> Thank you, Bernard. Thank you all very much for coming. We still have some cake left. We have some booze. We've got some drinks. We've got some cheese left. Thank you all very much. And happy Pride. Happy Pride. Yay. <laughs>